0: you mentioned something about <clears throat> surgeries um, in 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 a way are you are you would you say that doing uh, would you recommend someone do vision therapy before they undergo surgery to fix their eye because of the underlying reasons you mentioned earlier? Um, or, or is I would actually that should recommend
1: be- they go see a good developmental optometrist or behavioral optometrist and ask them that question hmm. um, because every case is different. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, so go see somebody who's a real expert in binocular vision and ask them that question. And because mm-hmm. um, um, I think the um, jury's still out as to um what is the best approach for each individual
0: right, correct have there been studies of people being put under fmris where we can look inside the brains um and you know while they're going well while they're undergoing vision therapy to see uh, or figure out what are the most effective methods um you know comparatively like You know, let's say you have someone using Brockstring on their fMRI, and then you have someone using prisms on their fMRI. And then, are we able to, could we be able to tell um, better or come up with better methods uh, to treat um, binocular vision disorders if we are able to peek inside the brain much more? Um, What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think there have been some, um, there are some studies that are now being developed along those lines, but there's still, my knowledge, somewhat preliminary. But I guess for me, I don't put that much. To me, I put more stock in this, that somebody does some intervention, like vision therapy, and starts to see better. To me, that is far more important than, oh, we saw a change in some neurons in their brain. Um, Partly because the... um, Techniques such as fMRI have their, um, you know, they they can't show you everything that's going on in the brain. They're rather a cruel measure of what's happening. And to me, what matters is function. If, If a person, when I first came to see Dr. Ruggiero, the first thing she asked me was, what is it you would like to do with your vision that you cannot do? And I came to see her because driving was so much of a problem. That was the thing that really, um, I'm, no pun intended, but it really drove me to her. Um, um, so to me, it's function that matters. So if a person comes in and does vision therapy and can now go about doing what it is they want to do or have to do, <coughs> whether you know it's it's um, driving. Um, Working on something that requires good um, 3D vision with your hands um, or just being able to walk around without bumping into things, being able to read more fluidly and with better understanding, that to me matters so much more than whether, um, you know, somebody finds, oh, there's been a change in your brain or there hasn't been. Now, that's not to say that the fMRI studies or other types of studies like that aren't important. Yes, they are. And they certainly will give us some information about what might be changing in the brain. But it's not where I would go to determine the success of vision therapy or other intervention. Where I would go to determine the success is, can the patient accomplish what they want to do? Is their function Day to day function improved. Can they get the job they really wanted that they couldn't get before? And um, there's a good parallel to this in the work done by a man named Taub on stroke. Mm-hmm. And he came up with a method to really improve people's ability to recover from strokes, mm-hmm. to move move their arms let's say better after a stroke mm-hmm. and um, this was Edward Tabsworth taUB and he had all this data showing that this that their the patients were getting better functionally but his approach wasn't accepted so much in the scientific circles until he showed that there were actual changes in the brain now it's in, it's important to show their actual changes in the brain. But to me, it's sort of like the fact that the patients got better and could use their arms for the things they needed to use their arms for was far more important and far more convincing Hmm. to me that the therapy, um, the therapy was working Hmm. because when we probe into the brain, we're only probing into a small percentage of what is probably happening. And, and if we then, um, Stress. What we see in terms of brain changes, we're probably missing out on some other really important points. Um, like does the patient actually feel better, be- get better? Can they adapt better? Can they function better? Right. You know. So um, yeah. So that's that's my my take. Function I like,
0: is what really. I, I yeah, I f- wholesomely agree. Um you know, I'd like to get your take on the idea of uh, traumatic brain injury um, and yeah. vision therapy. You know, and, and, you know, what do you think are the challenges there? What are the parallels between amblyopic, strapismic patients, um, you know, versus with, with, you know, traumatic brain injury patients? Um, and can something, can something be done, you know, with vision therapy for them at this point? Oh,
1: yeah. Vision therapy um, is proving very effective. In cases of traumatic brain injury. And I think something like almost 40, 50 percent of, let's say, soldiers coming back from the Gulf War who've had um, brain injury as a result of IED explosions and so on, where the brain is rocked back and forth in the head, um, thus really affecting a lot of the long fiber pathways. A good... A large percentage of those patients have binocular vision problems as a result. Um, Convergence insufficiency being very common. That is that they're now having trouble turning in the two eyes together um, when looking at a near target, which makes something like reading extremely difficult. Hmm. And um, so the procedures that have been worked out um, for treating, let's say, convergence insufficiency in a, um, in a child without a brain injury um, can also be used with people with traumatic um, brain injury. I've been very struck by um, the similarities in binocular problems that people with traumatic brain injury have um, with my own experiences. So, for example up until recently, I hated going to the mall or any place that was really crowded and cluttered. And that's a very common experience with people with traumatic brain injury. There's just too much stimulation. It's just too hard to deal with. Hmm. And um, so I've been very struck by these similarities. Um, One of the uh, risk factors for developing a binocular problem in in children is premature birth. And to me, that indicates that the binocular system is very fragile and can easily be disrupted. And um, so the same is true, let's say with premature birth and may also be true with um, a traumatic brain injury. And so it may not be surprising then that so many people with CBIs have binocular vision problems. And um, the hope is that they're getting the vision therapy that they need.
0: I have another, it's sort of, so we've been, I'm of the idea that, you know, we have two eyes, we also have two ears. Um, We have, we humans also have uh, the ability to sort of, Tell the spatial audio, um, and you know, which is yep. bringing up vivid vision for this one particular question. You know, we've been thinking about combining the binocular vision um, through the v- VRs, the through the tool of VR, but also spatial 3D audio to be able to complement you know the visual, the binocular vision, and along yep. with 3D audio. And I wonder the, if you think there's something there. You know, if we if we're able to activate I neurons do. on both sides, yeah. So tell me more I
1: do I think I think um, that um, well, I'll just give you an example. I know for myself that I do not have very good auditory localization skills. They're not horrible, but I'll give you an example. one time we had this can opener in our kitchen and it was it's in a drawer with a lot of other stuff, and it went off this can opener would play the theme song for some college, you know, for their football games. And um, I was rattling around in the drawer and this, I must have knocked the can opener somehow. Um, and it started to sing. and I, I couldn't find it. I didn't know where it was. I mean, I started looking all over the kitchen for it. My husband comes down and he goes, turn that darn thing off. And I said, I would, but I don't know where it is. He made a beeline right for the the right drawer, reached in his hand and grabbed the can opener and turned it off. Hmm. And I thought, wow, how did you do that? And he said, well, I just heard it. I knew where it was because I could hear it. So one time I did um, a test with a developmental optometrist called Deborah Zelinsky, who's in the Chicago area. And she called it, um, I forget the actual name for it, but what she did is I, with my eyes closed, she would ring a bell. The bell would be, you know, within arm's reach, somewhere around my head. And I would have to reach for it with my arms, with my hands. And I was really bad at this. I mean, I knew that the bell was either on my right side or my left side, but beyond that, I wasn't very good at localizing it. And I was very impressed by that. Um, Impressed. Um, in the sense that I love to birdwatch, and now that I have stereo vision I, I can really see the bird as separate from the branch and that's a thrill but I remember going on bird expeditions and I was always the last person to see the bird and a lot of people hearing the bird and then looking and seeing it and I could just sort of look in the general area but not use what I was hearing to, to pinpoint the bird as as well as other people seem to be able to do. So I don't know if my experience is general, but I think that spatial localization is compromised when you have binocular vision problems. And um, that compromising may then extend to uh, the auditory realm. And it would be really interesting. I, I think it's a great idea to put in auditory as well as, um, visual spatial challenges you know to um the people using vivid vision and seeing um and seeing what happens i think my auditory skills are getting better i kind of work at it um every time i hear a bird i try to find it in the trees and uh, well pretty soon they're going to leaf out but now they don't have any leaves on them so it's um it's easier than it's going to be in a few in another couple weeks
0: Sounds like we're going to be making a bird-watching game for you, specially tailored for you um, with special audio in VR.
1: (laughs) I would love that. I think that would be, uh, you know, but you might want to think about making games that are generally appealing and not everybody is going to be keen about looking for birds.
0: Birds are cool. Birds are cool. Maybe we can add phoenixes in there so that the kids are more.
1: uh, Yeah, like really, um, really spectacular.
0: Yeah, something like yeah. that. Um, so we're gonna start bringing things to a close. I have just one last question for you. Um, you I, I dare you. Are, they, are I dare you to dream on this one. Um, and, and and in the context of like, what are your hopes and dreams um, for the field of vision therapy going forward?
1: Oh, that's easy. I think <laughs> vision therapy should be the standard of care for every patient who has a binocular vision problem. I think every child should be screened for by bi- uh, not for their binocular vision skills before entering kindergarten, and that if those um, skills are found to be not up to snuff, that there is a binocular vision problem, that that be treated right from the get-go, so that child doesn't struggle in school the way I did. Mm-hmm. And you know, any person who goes through surgery um, for strabismus, that they um, they have the opportunity to undergo vision therapy, um, that it become the standard of care, that insurance companies do, um, you know, do uh, cover it, that optometrists and ophthalmologists become best friends and work together so patients get the comprehensive care they need. Uh, since I became Stereo Sue, since Oliver Sacks first wrote about me 10 years ago, I have received emails from more than a thousand people with binocular vision disorders. It's very clear to me that there's lots of people out there who need help. And, um, you know, the binocular vision disorders can impact you in all sorts of ways. Some people it's relatively mild impact. For other people, it's completely derailed their lives. And um, to me, to think about, there shouldn't be a, a child in school who has a binocular vision problem that isn't found out about and treated? That would be my dream. Um, that people with binocular vision problems wouldn't would get the would get what they get the therapy, the interventions that they need, and um, no child would struggle in school because of these problems anymore.
0: Yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to add our little grain of sand to, to that goal, to that dream. Um.
1: Oh, big grain. It'll be like a boulder. A sand <laughs> uh, add a sand.
0: Any last thoughts? Um, how can people, uh, yeah, any last thoughts before we bring things so close? Um.
1: No, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you. Oh, yeah, I do have one thing. Okay. One thing I really love about vivid vision is that it was developed by a man with amblyopia. Mm-hmm. And what I was saying before about when you have a binocular vision problem, when, you know, I had strabismus from, from the get go and I had three surgeries as a child. And even though my parents never would have said this, the, the, the message I got was, you are deficient. You are, you can't control your eyes. You need to go to the hospital just to look normal. And I told you that vision therapy was the opposite for me. It was entirely empowering. It was like you can take responsibility for your own vision. You can control your own vision. Patients need to speak up more. Hmm. An ophthalmologist or sometimes an optometrist will tell you and say, I think I know, I know what it is that you see. Well, that's actually not true they don't necessarily know what you see. Um, and um, so the patients need to be more, more assertive. They need to speak up more. They need to be listened to and they need to be in the, among the people who are devising the therapies that are going to work. And that's what James has done with vivid vision. He had amblyopia. He treated his own, his, you know, his own problem. And, I think that's tremendous. I think that's that. Um, that's I'd love to see more of that. And my hat's off to him for for recognizing. Um, you know, he had certain skills. He built a device, treating his own vision, and then bringing it to the world. I mean, we patients have to speak up, and that's and James has done exactly that.
0: I'll, um, I'll make sure I pass the word on to him. Um, how can people stay in touch? How can people follow what you're doing and, and just in general uh, keep up with what the the work that you're doing as well?
1: Okay, so I have a website called stereosue.com S-T-E-R-E-O-S-U-E dot com I have a Facebook page Stereo Sue I wrote a book, Fixing My Gaze um, which is Easy to find online. Um, for people who live in other countries, sometimes they are not able to get a copy of the book. You know, if they live in a far away, and I've sent copies overseas to people many times. Um, I have an email address, stereosue at gmail.com. And, um, you know, um, if somebody is booking, one thing that I, I do a lot of is people write to me. And um, I try to connect them with a developmental or behavioral optometrist who may be able to help. And I have a number of people that I write to, to say, I have, uh, I heard from a man today with strabismus who lives in the following place. Uh, do you know of, a, of anyone who can help him? That's, you know, close to where he lives. And um, that is one role that I take very seriously. I try to connect people with people who can help them. And um, so that's how you can get in touch with me.
0: Awesome. Dr. Barry. thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And it was really an honor and a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you.